This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 3rd, 2023. Happy New Year. And uh, this is brought to you each week by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers talking to you again from Phoenix here on the, actually recording this on the 3rd of January. And I'll release it here later today, I should say, actually on the 2nd, I should say, releasing it. So we'll have this officially be the 3rd. I'm treating the 2nd as the New Year's Day holiday, shall we say. And so we'll move forward from here. So this week, I was going to just be doing a session on the SECURE Act, and I'll probably do a separate uh, program on that here shortly, quick one. Uh, but it turns out the IRS put a lot of stuff out this week. So it wasn't really a week that we could sit back and ignore. After having many weeks where the IRS put very little out and nothing much happened, this week we had a number of things come out. So what we'll talk about this week is we're going to talk about the IRS that told us they're going to issue regulations for the uh, definition for the new clean vehicle credit. Remember, that took effect on January 1st. And now we're back to where Teslas and uh, GM cars can qualify for the credit. We're sitting in a weird period where we don't worry about the battery rules yet. Uh, but we do worry about the issues about whether it was final manufacture in the U.S. So we'll talk a bit about that. The IRS has already published on their website a list of vehicles that may qualify. And again, we're back to still may qualify. Again, the IRS is not saying these vehicles are going to meet the test for manufacturer suggested retail price, nor are they saying it will meet the requirements for having the batteries when that finally comes into play, or that every one of these vehicles is actually has final assembly in the United States. All of that are things we're not basically going to say for sure yet are happening. So that's part of what's going on here. We also have the IRS issued us guidance on the commercial vehicle credit for 45W uh, that talks about incremental cost safe harbors if you're considering the commercial clean vehicle credit. So we'll talk a bit about that. We got, for those of you looking at more traditional vehicles, shall we say, or vehicles that aren't clean necessarily, we also got for 2023, the mileage rates were issued by the IRS. And finally, the IRS solved an issue we've been worrying about for the past couple of weeks. They issued the final 2022 Schedule K-2 and K-3 Partnership Form 1065 instructions. And these are the ones that tell us about the domestic filing exception and how we can meet that. And it settled our question of, was there a reason, was the IRS planning on changing the list of partners that could qualify, that would allow you to still meet that exception? You know, since they had released the S-Corp instructions over a week ago, the answer was, answer turned out to be no, they weren't really going to change anything. Uh, the domestic filing exception really didn't change in this version of the credit. So let's start and talk about the IRS's plans to issue new definitions for the new clean vehicle credit. This is notice 2023-1 issued on December the 29th. And this weirdly serves primarily to tell us they plan to issue regulations to define various terms that are involved in the new clean vehicle credit. And the first one they're going to tell us is the concept of final assembly. And final assembly, they tell us, now, interesting enough, they don't commit to this, which is kind of interesting. So they say these are what they expect the regs to say. But they also never explicitly say you can rely upon this. Now, I'll talk a little bit at the very end about why I think you probably can rely upon this, but nothing says one way or the other. Now, the definition of final assembly, they expect to be in the final regulations, 
is the says final assembly is the process by which a manufacturer produces a new clean vehicle at or through the use of a plant factory or other place from which the vehicle is delivered to a dealer or importer with all components parts necessary for mechanical operation of the vehicle included with the vehicle whether or not the components parts are permanently installed in or on the vehicle to establish where final assembly of a new vehicle occurred the taxpayer may rely on the following the vehicle's plant and manufacturer as reported in the vehicle identification number pursuant to 49 CFR 565, or the final assembly point reported on the label affixed to the vehicle as described in 49 CFR 583.5A3. So that tells you where and how to get our final assembly numbers going. Now, of course, that final assembly has to be in North America. So they do tell us that for purposes of this definition, North America means the territory of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and then they actually define it over to another Code of Federal Regulations section, 19 CFR Part 182, Appendix A, Section 1, and parenthesis 1, if you want to go find that. Nevertheless, not surprisingly, U.S., Canada, Mexico are considered to be the areas involved. Now, manufacturer suggested retail price was one area that we were a little bit interested in how the IRS is going to define this for sure. But they tell us that manufacturer suggested retail price means the sum of the retail price of the automobile suggested by the manufacturer as described in Title 15, United States Code, Section 1232 F1, and B, the retail delivered price suggested by the manufacturer for each accessory or item of optional equipment physically attached to such automobile at the time of its delivery to the dealer, which is not included with the price of the automobile as stated pursuant to Title 15, United States Code, Section 1232 F1, as described in Title 15, U.S. Code, 1232 F2. This information reported on the label is affixed to the windshield or the side window of the vehicle as described in Title 15, U.S.C. 1232. As you're becoming aware, there's a lot of existing federal law that dealt in these areas, and the IRS is leaning on that. So basically, it seems to be that those things that come from the factory are included. Uh, if the dealer is to put things on the car, that obviously would not go into this particular definition. So we get into that now. Be interesting to see if things start being sold as after-the-fact add-ons uh, for vehicles, how that exactly works, you know, and whether what manufacturers do to meet those manufacturer-suggested retail price uh, areas. But we'll take a look at that. For vehicle classifications, uh, you know, the Apple limitation, they tell us again, is the $80,000 for the vans, the sport utility vehicles, the pickup trucks, and everything else is $55,000. And for pur these purposes, the vehicle identification, vehicle classification is to be determined in a manner consistent with the rules and definitions provided in the 40 CFR uh, 600.002 for vans, sport utility vehicles, pickup trucks, a vehicle described in section 30D, IRC section 30D, F11B4 is a vehicle not considered a van, sport utility, or pickup truck, consistent with the rules and definitions provided in 40 CFR 600.002. Placed in service is also something to be defined here, but this one probably is not totally surprising. For purposes of this credit, a new clean vehicle has been placed in service on the date the taxpayer takes possession of the vehicle. So unlike we see for depreciation, where it says ready and available for its intended use, if apparently if there are some other things you plan to do to the vehicle before you actually use it, you know, for maybe personal purposes, uh, you know, I don't know, you're going to put a camper on the back of that uh, Rivian. I don't know what you're going to do. In any event, 
that would not slow down your placed in service date. Now, the real question obviously becomes here, well, can we rely on these definitions, right? Well, that answer is kind of open. Uh, as I said, my guess is we probably can. And I say that because in the absence of regulations, and currently we don't have those, right? Generally, taxpayers should be able to use a reasonable interpretation of the code as the code overrides everything. Now, while in theory, the IRS did not say that you can use these as your interpretation of the code, it is probably going to be difficult in court for the IRS to argue that the definitions they've just put out in Notice 2023-1 do not represent reasonable interpretations of the code. So my guess is if you want to run out there right now and buy that electric vehicle and get the $7,500 credit, you probably can do it fairly safely. And the reason why some people may want to run out there right now is that they make it very clear this does not represent the issuance of guidance on the battery issues. And until that guidance is issued under the law, you're going to get the full $7,500 credit as long as the vehicle meets the manufacturer suggested retail price limitations and it meets the requirements for, you know, basically take delivery this year, right? And manufacturers and final assembly in the U.S. That suggests that certain vehicles that we don't expect will be able to meet those requirements. Let's say meet the battery requirements. Uh, I think I've heard a lot of uh, suggestions the Chevy Bolt probably won't meet those requirements. Well, turns out that it may very well at this point, and at this point, that is the least expensive uh, electric vehicle out there. Uh, also, though, any other of the electric vehicles you might have been looking at uh, that you maybe you think, hey, you know, I could grab that. And if you grab them now, you don't worry about the battery rules. Once the battery rules are out, then it will matter if they meet the battery issues. You might wonder, well, what cars qualify? Well, the IRS decided to help us on this a little bit. They put on their website, the manufacturers and models for new qualified clean vehicles purchased in 2023 or after. And this is on their website. It is a list of all manufacturers who have applied to be qualified manufacturers. And if the manufacturer has, in addition to, you know, applying to be a qualified manufacturer, if that manufacturer has given specific models that they say may qualify, those are listed there as well. Now, in some cases, you do have manufacturers that have not yet submitted the list. So all you'll know is that manufacturer applied to be a qualified manufacturer, but they've yet to submit their list. In other cases, we have the list submitted. Now, merely grabbing a car or a model that's on that list is not necessarily good enough. The IRS notes that you still must check other qualifications, right? And that criteria you have to check, well, that will include things like, you know, where the final assembly was, you know, and make sure that your suggested retail price is below the level involved. But in any event, you should be able to now find that on the IRS website. We do have the link in the uh, downloaded materials if you grab that. You should be able to grab that from the website. Uh, th this week's update files in the article, we do have the link to that particular location, plus the link to the Department of Energy page for which you can check the VIN number. So if you're looking or your clients are looking at getting one of these vehicles early in the year, uh, you probably want to go ahead and send them out to those sites. That'd probably be a useful way to do it. And so in our third thing related to the uh, new credits under the Inflation Reduction Act, we have notice 2023-9 which was issued on December the 29th. And this one's interesting because this one deals with the commercial clean vehicle credit under section 45W. 
And one of the limitations there on that credit is that your total amount of credit can be no more than the incremental cost of the clean vehicle versus a similar non-clean vehicle. Now, there have been a lot of suggestions. Does that mean I have to go look, you know, I have to get something that has both a clean and a non-clean version, and then I'll compare my cost of, let's say, the clean Honda Accord to the not clean Honda Accord? I mean, is that how I check it? Uh, and turns out that we're going to get a safe harbor that doesn't require us to go to that level. The Department of Energy conducted a study on the effective cost differences between clean and non-clean vehicles. And the IRS is saying, well, we're going to allow you to essentially use that study. Now, for vehicles that weigh less than 14,000 pounds, except for plug-in hybrid electric vehicles that are compact, you know, basically compact, compact, shall we say, versions of them, which includes subcompacts and below, uh, the differences are at least $7,500 they found for all vehicles under 14,000 pounds. Now, since one of the other limitations on this credit, if you have a vehicle less than 14,000 pounds, is $7,500 is the max it could be, it doesn't matter, basically. If the incremental cost is more than 7,500, then 7,500 is going to be your actual limit. And then we go through the regular vehicle, through the regular credit computation. In this case, that means that you're told that for everything except a compact plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, uh, and if you're not sure what that is, that that's one of those vehicles that has, you know, it, it is, it's a hybrid, uh, but it's not like the old, um, you know, basically the, the original hybrid you got that had a very small electric battery and it was all done through regeneration. Rather, in this case, it's one that you actually can run a significant distance on uh, just using the electric motor, not, not as far as you can for a full electric vehicle, but you could. So those are what we're counting in this category, which is a compact uh, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Those have a at least you know, less than $700 difference. So what they've stated is there, you can use the numbers for the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. Uh, you can use that from the study as your difference. You can also use the differences cited for the various classes of vehicles that weigh uh, in excess of 14,000 pounds. Each one of those can be used, okay? So we have those particular items in there. Again, you can grab that from the website. You can take a look at that. Remember the commercial credit uh, is the one that does not have a limitation based on income, right? It, you know, it doesn't have the manufacturer suggested retail price limitations. My guess is you're going to see some car dealers begin to push people towards the uh, commercial version if they have a closely held business. That opens up a whole bunch of other issues whenever you have cars in a business. But as I said, don't be surprised if you began to see car dealers talking to your clients who have their own businesses on this 45W commercial clean electric vehicle credit or clean vehicle, not necessarily electric vehicle credit. Also, something that we hadn't come up recently and got some people concerned about, but notice 2023-03, this was issued on December 29th. We got the standard business mileage rates for next year. And the rate for business mileage, and let's say another mileage, but we're going to have business mileage, will be 65 and a half cents per mile. That's up from what we had the end of last year. 
So we're up again. This one should apply for the entire year unless prices go up again because that's when the IRS has previously adjusted mid-year. They don't tend to adjust mid-year when prices go down. Uh, the charity limit, as always, is 14 cents per mile. That's hard-coded in the Internal Revenue Code, so we're never getting rid of that. You also get a 22 cents per mile for medical mileage and the very limited cases, primarily for people in the armed services in certain situations where they can get uh, moving expense mileage of 22 cents per mile. We also got the updated uh, brand new depreciation uh, reductions amounts, the amount of the reduction when you use it for business purposes. That was this year. And that's gonna mean that we're gonna treat it as 20, basically uh, 28 cents per mile for 2023, 26 for 22, 26 for 21 as well, 27 for 2020, and 26 for 2019. So those are our deemed depreciation if you have a car that you've been doing over the, uh, using the standard mileage rate on and you later sell it, that's gonna be your business use reduction is based on that. Now also we got a couple of, ma of the maximum cost. The maximum cost for a plan under the fixed and variable rate plan amounts is 60,800. That's gonna be the same amount for, and it's basically cars and trucks in that case. And under the fleet average valuation rule or cents per mile rule, that's also 60,800 for 2023. So if you've been waiting to try to get your mileage numbers in for 23 for reimbursement, beginning this week, we have the numbers, they are available for you. So we're ready to go there. Finally, this is one we've been waiting on for a while. We did get the partnership instructions for schedules K2 and K3 for the 2022 returns. Now, as you remember, we had already received the final S Corporation version. That had come out uh, back, uh, it was basically over a week ago that we had gotten that and there were no real changes made to the way you would qualify for the domestic filing exception. If you've forgotten about that already, what that one is, that told you for an S Corporation, you didn't have to file schedules K2 and K3, as long as you had no items of international, you know, uh, basically no, no foreign activities in the partnership or minimal. And the minimal category was you had no more than $300 worth of credible foreign taxes. And those credible taxes all came to you from interest, dividends, and the like passive income. And that income was all reported on a 1099 1099-DIV or 1099-INT, uh, or a Schedule K-1 from a trust, unlikely in that context, or a Schedule K-1 from a partnership. Okay. Well, the question became though, and if as long as that was true, and you gave a notice to your shareholders that you weren't gonna send a K-3 unless they asked for one, and nobody had told you they wanted one uh, by the date that was one month before the date you filed the form 1120S, then you didn't have to do the schedules K2 and K3 for that year. If somebody tells you after the one month date, that one month before filing date, that they need the K3s, then you had to provide them with the K3s. You know, they would be provided, but you would not give it to the IRS. And, you know, basically you would not amend the return. You would make any revisions to the return. There was some interest, though, because, again, the partnership version of that rule was very similar, except there was a rule that there's another rule that says all of your partners have to be U.S. citizens 
uh, U.S. residents, right, or U.S. residents, so one of these categories, uh, a domestic trust, a domestic estate, right, could qualify for it in that realm. Uh, you also had, you could qualify if you were, you know, a one-person S-corporation or you were a single-member LLC uh, where the owner of the single-member LLC was treated as discard entity uh, was one of those who qualified under one of the other categories. Now, because that was the only difference between the S-corporation and the partnership, there was at least some thought that maybe the IRS is holding this partnership thing just because they plan to expand that list. If you remember, for last year, we're doing it for 21 returns. The IRS, when they finally released what's the equivalent of this, which was in mid-February, there you merely had to have, you could also have domestic partnerships and domestic corporations as partners and still meet the test. This year, having any domestic partnership means you can't use this exclusion. And number two, having any domestic corporation except a one-person S corporation meant that you could not meet this test. Well, turns out uh, your hopes were dashed. Uh, they did not make any changes to the domestic filing exception from the early December 2nd draft instructions. So that means we, are, we must have partners that meet the list from December 2nd. That was slightly expanded from October, but not greatly. So it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to do, even if you did it last year, potentially, if you have any partnerships as a partner or any corporations as a partner that aren't one person as corporations. Now, as I mentioned, we talked about this when the S-Corp one came out. Do seriously consider whether it's worth the bother. Whoops, got my slides going one too quick. Uh, was it really worth the bother to qualify for the domestic filing exception? The tax software, at least what I've seen so far from UltraTax and what I've been told exists in, in uh, LACERT, they apparently are able to fairly simply just flag all activity as U.S. and prepare the Schedule K-2 and K-3 based on that assumption, also provide the average value, average book value of the assets held and make them U.S. listed. That probably means that no or minimal adjustments need to be made to the resulting K-2s and K-3s uh, in order to just send them along with the return and have them filed. Since that may be in the, in the case of UltraTax, meaning just checking one box on one page and you're set, that may be far simpler than going through the process of qualifying for this uh, domestic filing exception especially if later down the line, somebody tells you, I need a K-3. Because remember, if they tell you that, the one thing I forgot to mention, if you're told that by any partner or shareholder after the one-month date, then that means in 23, you will be required to provide them with the K-3 information and provide that to the IRS. So that could be a problem. You'd end up having to do this late in tax season or maybe late in the extended tax season when you might not have the time to do it. And it may turn out that in any event, you're just going to get a one-year reprieve from doing it this way. While if you just pre prepare the forms and say, forget it, I'm preparing them, then you get out of all of that mess. And when you finish the partnership or S-Corp return, you're basically done. We're finished and it's over. So we don't need to worry about that. So you might want to check your tax software, see what they're doing. And by the way, if your software doesn't yet support it, 
considering that it's becoming people are becoming aware that two majors do, uh, don't be surprised if you see it added to the other programs as well. So, you know, just just carefully consider whether you want to go down the domestic filing exception path. Secondly, to deal with another problem that some people got really wrapped up about. No, I do not believe there is any requirement whatsoever that you have to give people like a month. You have to be out of suppose two months notice, right? If they need a month to tell you they need a K-3, then, and they have to tell you that at least a month before the return's filed, then that really means you have to issue notices two months earlier, which is creating a whole set of requirements that have never been mentioned anywhere in any of these instructions. My take, very simply, very straightforward. Nothing in the instructions says you have to give notice at any time until you give them the K-1. You don't have to give them the K-1 until you file the return. Filing the return is the date that starts, you know, is the date we go one month back from for having to include the K-2 and K-3 with the return. So while some people are just terribly concerned, that can't be right. That's not, you know, that's not what they meant. It's like, it's what they said. And even more important, I think it's what they meant. I don't think it's accidental the way it got written. I, I think they didn't want to say that what we're really saying is just send it out to people that request it. because That's what the AICPA asked for. So what they're actually doing is trying to come in between that and say, okay, for this year, just send it out to those who request it. But if you get any requests this year, then you're going to have to do it next year. Okay, that, that's how we're going to run this down. So you're going to tell everybody about the fact that they may need the form. And then next year, you know, if anybody responds to that, next year you're going to have to file the forms. That, that seems to be what the IRS is after. So this has been the updates for what happened this week aside from getting a brand new tax law passed uh, for current federal tax developments for the week of January the 3rd, 2023. As always, you can email me at zollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. I am available online uh, for the Connect sites for the societies for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and I do look at the discussion forum for Idaho, so you can check in there. Otherwise, uh, happy new year. Uh, hopefully you're ready for the approaching tax season. That should be coming up here very shortly and you're getting all your tax software installed and getting your organizers out and all that other fun stuff that we do this time of year. In any event, we'll keep an eye on what happens this week and I plan to see you back in a week here on current federal tax developments.